And, and, and if I hit that button, I can erase a misspelled word. I can erase a, a poorly written paragraph. Or, like I did a couple weeks ago, an entire message that I'd spent about 20 hours working on. Of course, when you do something like that, it's great to have one of these. An undo icon. Helps you get back those deletes you shouldn't have deleted. Would be cool, wouldn't it, if life had a delete button? Just punch in the button and erase words spoken in anger. Erase our dumb mistakes. Our bad decisions. Our embarrassing moments. Of course, if we're not careful, we might end up deleting things we should keep. And we might not have an undo button to get it all back. See, there are some things in our lives that we would like to forget. But there are some things in our lives we cannot afford to forget. And here's why. God's faithfulness in our past shines a light of hope over our future. Did you get that? God's faithfulness in our past shines a light of hope over our future. And if we forget what God has done for us in the past, as we face the uncertainty of the future, there will be nothing but fear. If we can't see God's work in our past, we will forget to factor Him into our future. In the midst of this life of uncertainty, I mean whether we're talking about the crazy stuff going on in the world around us or the impact of whatever might be happening in our families or our finances or on our jobs uh, or even with our health, if we forget God's past faithfulness, our future will look hopeless. And when our future looks hopeless, uncertainty and helplessness and that very hopelessness has the power, as we're going to see this morning, to drive us into unhealthy relationships, unhealthy choices, unhealthy decisions, unhealthy lifestyles. There's some folks here this morning who could say this. My biggest regret in life is when I allowed fear to drive me into an unhealthy relationship. Or when I allowed fear to, to force me to make poor financial decisions. Or when I let fear cause me to take a job I re really knew I, I shouldn't have taken. I, I knew at the time that it wasn't a smart thing to do, but I was afraid. I was so anxious about the future that I just jumped on board the next thing that was coming by. I felt like if I didn't do something, nothing good was going to happen. And it really doesn't matter where we are in our relationship with God. You could just be one of the curious, just checking things out, not sure what you really believe, or you could be one of the truly committed, or you could be anywhere in between, anywhere in that continuum. If we forget God's faithfulness in our past, we will not factor God into our future. This morning, to help us make our way through all this, I want us to look at a story in the Bible about a man who forgot God's faithfulness in his past. And i got to tell you, when I was reading about him again, it had been a little while since I'd read this part of the Bible, but when I was reading about this man's life, I thought, gosh, this guy's dumb. 
I mean, when you look at all God has done in his life, how could he possibly forget? And then you know what happened? I thought about myself. And I thought about how in the middle of my day-to-day stuff, family stuff and financial stuff, church stuff, I find myself afraid and overwhelmed and anxious. And sometimes I think God must look down from heaven and say, Scott, after all I've done in your life, how could you be so afraid? And the answer is real simple. When I forget God's faithfulness in my past, when I forget God's past faithfulness, then I forget to factor him into my future. And when I forget to factor God into my future, that's when I get nervous and overwhelmed and anxious and afraid. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn over to the book of 1 Kings. It's in the Old Testament. Right after 1 and 2 Samuel comes 1 and 2 Kings. If you get over into Psalms and Proverbs, you've gone too far. You want to flip back a little bit. We're going to begin in chapter 17. It's the story of a man named Elijah. Can I insert something here? If you're not sure what you think or how you feel about the Bible, I mean, there's some parts of it that seem a little weird, a little unreal. And you might be tempted to say, well, that could never happen. But I can tell you that I believe the stories in this Bible are true. I believe they're real stories about real men and women who really lived in history. And the reason I believe that is not because I've ever met anybody that had things like this happen to them. Not not because I've ever had these things happen to me. I, I accept these stories as true for one reason, and that's because Jesus did. Jesus said they happened, and I just sort of go with Jesus. I mean, we can document his life historically, and he rose from the dead. And you know, when somebody rises from the dead, I just kind of tend to listen to what they have to say. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus refers to part of this story that we're going to look at, and he refers to it as a historical event. So as strange as this story might seem, and as hard as it might be to believe, Jesus believed it. And because Jesus believed it, I believe it. So here's a little background now to set the stage. The first king of Israel was, and I'll throw it out there, who? Does anyone know? First king of Israel. It was Saul. So give yourself one pastor point if you got that right. The first king of Israel was Saul. Who was after Saul? Anybody know that? After Saul was David. And after David, who? Solomon. And I realize nobody knows what happened after that. I I know I don't know, but I've studied up on it a little bit. And here's what I can tell you. After Solomon, the nation divided into two parts. It became the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And it can be confusing when we're reading in the Old Testament because histories of both of those kingdoms are kind of intermingled and, and, and they'll talk a little bit about one, what was happening in one kingdom and then they'll talk a little bit about what was happening in the other kingdom. And they functioned independently and sometimes they cooperated together and fought together and sometimes they fought with each other. So the story that we're going to look at this morning takes place in the nation of Israel after the split. Each nation, after the split, had a series of really, really bad kings. There, were, there was occasionally a, a good one, but, but usually they had one horrible king after another. And the one that shows up in Elijah's story is Ahab. Now, you've never heard of him probably, but I bet everybody has heard his wife's name. 
His wife's name was Jezebel. Does that ring a bell? That's not a name we use a lot these days, is it? Um, Here, I'd like you to meet my little daughter, Jezebel. You don't hear that very much. There's just a lot of negatives associated with Jezebel, and this story kind of tells us how all that got started. Now, what had happened was that bad King Ahab had married outside of Israel, and that was something God had said never to do. But he he went outside, and he went to uh, Sidonia, um, and... and, um, married this woman Jezebel and when she came she brought all of her people's false gods with her. She brought all kind of foreign pagan false gods that were worshipped in her homeland and you know it turned out that worshipping these false gods was uh, a lot more fun in some pretty vile ways uh, than it was to worship um, the one true God and so God's people in Israel began to turn away and worship the false gods particularly one uh, that was called Baal. And Jezebel pretty much wore the pants around the castle. She, she ran things. She, she ran the country. She ran her family. Uh, Ahab was a pretty weak king, and, and he just did whatever Jezebel told him to do. And the Bible tells us that Ahab was more evil and did more evil than all the kings that had come before him. And God gets fed up. And he sends his spokesman. That's a, a preacher type, um, a prophet was what they were called in the Old Testament, named Elijah. And he says, you go tell Ahab, get your act together because some bad things are going to happen. And God says, because of your sin and because of the worship of false gods in my nation Israel, I'm going to stop the rain for years. And so Elijah goes and he tells the king that. And then he turns around and walks out and leaves the city. And we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 17. Verses 1 through 4. Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew, no rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him. Elijah delivers God's message. He goes, he tells Ahab, these bad things are coming, there's not going to be any rain, and then he leaves town because God says, Elijah, you're going to need to go hide. And Elijah went and did exactly what God told him to do. Now, if you skip down and let's pick up in verses, verse 7, it says, uh, but after a while the brook dried up. Remember, there's no rain. And after a while the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. Now here's what I want us to see. God takes care of Elijah. First, he says, you need to go hide, go off to Kareth Brook. I've told some birds to bring you some food. Uh, And then because there's no rainfall, eventually the brook runs out. There's no water. And so then he sends him to Zarephath to live in the home of this widow. And guess what? Zarephath is Jezebel's hometown. Now, that's one of those twists that I think God throws in there uh, in, in the Scripture to see if we're paying attention. He sends the prophet to hide in Jezebel's hometown. 
A little bit later in the story, we're going to find out that Ahab is very upset with Elijah uh, because he prophesied that there would be no rain, and there hadn't been. For three years it didn't rain. And Ahab is beside himself, and he's been sending people out all over the place looking for Elijah. He sent them all over Israel, all over Judah, to the surrounding nations. And in the meantime, God is hiding Elijah right in the king's wife's hometown. The Bible says that every time Elijah sent a search par- or Ahab sent a search party out uh, to search for uh, to look for Elijah, that he made the leaders of the nation swear an oath that they had not seen him. So get this picture: a mad king sending search parties all over the place looking for Elijah, and the whole time God is taking care of the prophet, meeting all of his needs. We'll go back to the scripture in 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 1. Later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Elijah's Mr. Follow the Directions. I mean, whatever God tells him to do, he goes and does it. God told him to go warn the king. There's not going to be any rain for three years at least. And he goes and does it. God says, go out in the woods. I've told some birds to feed you. And he went out in the woods, went to live by the brook. God says, go to Jezebel's hometown. There's a a widow there who's going to take care of you. And he did it. And now he says, go present yourself to a king who's so mad at you that he's sending search parties out all over the place trying to find you. And Elijah does it. And we read about that meeting uh, in verse 17. Of, of 1 Kings 18. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So, is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the image of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with, the four, with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who were supported by Jezebel. So King Ahab and Elijah meet after three years, and Elijah says, I've got a message for you from God. I want you to gather up all the people and then bring all of the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of the other gods you've been worshiping, and we're going to have a showdown, and I'm going to prove once and for all who the real God is and who should be God in Israel. So... They had a my God's better than your God contest. And there were almost um, 1,000 false prophets there. And they build an altar to Baal. And Elijah builds an altar to the one true God. And they're, they're prepared for the sacrifices. They've got the animals there. Everything's ready. And Elijah says, hey, you know what? Let's not light them on fire. Um, ask your God to set yours on fire. And then I'll ask the real God to set mine on fire. So all these prophets of Baal and, and all these other false gods begin to pray and ask their gods to demonstrate to the people that they are real and, and that they are worthy to be worshipped. And here's what it says in 1 Kings 18 verse 26. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced hobbling around the altar they had made. 
And this sort of gets to Elijah. This, uh, he finds this kind of humorous. And, and, and you know, he, he begins to make fun of them. Uh, it, it, that's in, in verse 27. The next verse says, about noontime. Now get the picture here first. They've been doing this all morning long. And now it's noontime. And so verse 27, about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed. For surely he is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming. Or is relieving himself. The old living Bible used to say right there, maybe he's sitting on the toilet. Elijah goes on, maybe he's away on a trip or he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Elijah's so mean. He is so insensitive. He is so intolerant. You know what else he is? He's right. He's right. He knows their God is a phony, that he's a fake, that he's not real. He knows that nothing is going to happen, and this kind of hurts their, their itty-bitty feewings. And if you look at verse 28, it says, So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was still no sound. No reply, no response. It has gone on all day. King Ahab sitting here watching it. He's into Baal worship because his wife has told him to be into it. And Jezebel, his wife, is really into it. And it's been a wild, noisy, bloody, exhausting day. But as of yet, nothing godlike has happened. And then it's Elijah's turn. His altar is actually an old rebuilt altar. It was one on which the people at one time worshipped the one true God, though they haven't used it in a long time. And when he gets it set up with the animals on it, Elijah says to the people, pour water on there. Now, you know you don't do that to something you're about to set on fire, right? But, but they do what Elijah tells them. And, and they do it again. And they do it again when Elijah tells them to do it a second and third time. And eventually the Bible says that there was so much water that it was just rolling off the altar. And it was filling up the trenches that went all the way around it. It is thoroughly wet. And then Elijah steps up and begins to pray. We pick up in verse 36. Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trenches. And when the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them. And Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. 
The people turned from Baal to the one true God because, hey, we were there at the contest and woo, Elijah's God is, is God. He's the God who sends fire from heaven. He, the whole nation now is turning back to God. And Ahab can't believe what's happening. In fact, right after this, a little cloud forms in the sky and what happens is rain comes for the first time in three years. Don't you know at this point, Elijah is the man. I mean, he's kind of the hero. He has single-handedly brought down 1,000 false prophets. He's, he's begun, begun a revival in the nation. Ahab's the king, but Elijah is the prophet who speaks for God. And then something happens that causes things to shift. Ahab goes home and tells Jezebel what's happened. And she loses it. You wait till I get my hands on Elijah, she says. We look at uh, 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 1. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Now think about this. If you're Elijah, God's taken care of you for three years. He's provided food for you. He's provided water for you when there was a drought in the nation, when it hadn't rained in three years. He's provided shelter for you. He's provided protection. And then he sends you to Mount Carmel. And when you get to Mount Carmel, it's a thousand to one. And you win. God sends fire from heaven. The people repent, and you have basically eliminated the leaders of false religion in the nation. And then you get a nasty gram from a mean woman. Let me ask you, are you worried? I mean, are you worried? Well, look at the next verse, verse 3. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. Afraid of what? The king of the, the nation just fled from your presence, Elijah. It's over. You won. But look at what he did. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Beersheba's 100 miles away. That means that he ran for at least three weeks, maybe as long as a month. Back in verse 4, Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Now I read this and I'm thinking, did I miss something? I mean, is there a page missing out of my Bible? Is there a chapter left out? After everything that has happened over the last three years, after all God has done for him, Elijah runs away now? If you drop down to to verse 8, it says that Elijah got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him strength enough to travel 40 days and 40 to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. 
Okay. Now Elijah is about two months walking distance from where the action is. And I love this next part. And make sure you pay attention because this is God's question to you and me today. To those of us who so quickly forget what God has done in our lives and, and who find ourselves making decisions based on fear and anxiety, based on all the stuff going on around us, uh, based on panicking and freaking out because we don't know what might happen because we can't answer all the what ifs. And we're just like Elijah. We're afraid and we run. And we run and we get ourselves into situations we have no business being in. And now God asks the prophet a very penetrating question. It's in the second part of verse 9 there in 1 Kings 19. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? You're a couple hundred miles away from where I'm working. What are you doing here? Didn't I take care of you? Yeah. Didn't I provide for you when there was no water? Yeah. And no food? Yeah. And aren't you the one I sent to face down 1,000 false prophets? And I sent the fire when you prayed and I destroyed the worship of Baal in the land. And now the whole nation's beginning to turn back to me. What are you doing here? And look at what Elijah's answer is in verse 10. Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I could see God looking around at the angels, kind of like, is this the right guy? Is this the same guy? What are you doing here? Elijah, you don't have any business here. Have you forgotten everything? And God says, go stand outside the cave. I want to show you something. Let me pick up in verse 11. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Can you imagine? Elijah's out there all by himself in a raging windstorm. Think tornado. You know, think category five. Think uh, uh, the worst hurricane. And then there's an earthquake. And again, we've seen the pictures from Haiti of the devastation of an earthquake. And then there's a fire, and we only have to think back a few months to the, to the, um, the wildfires out in California. He has been standing there watching all of this demonst demonstration uh, of God's power and God's strength. But the Lord wasn't in those. It was really his way of saying, see what I can do? I'm God. 
I'm the God of Israel. I'm the God who sent fire. I'm your God. And at some point, when all this is going on, Elijah has retreated back into the cave, away from the devastation. And that's when God shows up. But in a very unexpected way. Pick up again the last part of verse 12. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Take a look around. Look at what I'm capable of. Why are you afraid? Why did you run? I mean, I know in the moment that you received that threat from Jezebel, your future wasn't clear. There was a threat of trouble. But have you forgotten? Did you forget to factor me in to your situation? You know, if it was just you and Jezebel, you might have been in trouble. But Elijah, you forgot about me. You forgot to factor me into your future. Elijah still doesn't get it. And you know, that gives me hope. Uh, that shows me I'm not the only thick-headed child the Lord has ever had. But he repeats himself word for word in verse 14. He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Elijah did what we all do when we get scared to death about what the future holds. He makes a set of assumptions. He assumes that since he hasn't seen God doing much, that God isn't doing much. He assumes that because he hasn't seen God in action, that God wasn't acting. He assumed because he hadn't figured out what God was going to do, that God hadn't figured out what he was going to do. And he assumed that God couldn't see any further or do any more than Elijah himself could see or do. And God, in his infinite mercy, in his, his long-suffering patience with every one of us, he sits Elijah down and he says, listen to me, I'm going to fill you in on everything I've been doing while you were running scared. You're 200 miles away from the action. While you've been worrying and crying and hiding and complaining, I've been busy. And while you were fleeing, I was figuring out a plan. And just because you didn't see me at work doesn't mean that I wasn't at work. And God lets Elijah in on the plan. Verse 15. 1 Kings 19, verse 15. Then the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint Haziel, the king of Aram. Oh, you've already picked out their new king? Yeah. Verse 16. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be the king of Israel. You've already got a replacement for Ahab? Yeah. Uh, you don't like him any more than I do? No. 
Continuing on in verse 16. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. God, you're adding staff in this economy? You've selected another prophet? Yes, Elijah. That's what I mean. That's why I ask you, what are you doing here? It's a new day. There's stuff to be done. I'm your God and I'm still in control and I haven't forgotten you. What are you doing here? Verse 17. Anyone who escapes from Haziel will be killed by Jehu. And those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. And yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Wow, Lord, (laughs) you have been busy. And you know, I I think at that point, Elisha got it. What am I doing here? Why in the world am I 200 miles away from the plans and purposes of God? Why did I run? How did I forget? Why did I panic? Why was I afraid? Now listen, any time in our life that we forget God's past faithfulness our tendency when faced with uncertainty our tendency when faced with I don't know what's going to happen our tendency when we're anxious and afraid is to go to places we have no business going to run to relationships we have no business being in. Uh, to, to, to make financial decisions we have no business making. To go to places emotionally we have no reason to be. To make choices and decisions that we wouldn't ordinarily make. When we forget God's faithfulness in our past, our tendency is to run to places We have no business being. This morning, God is asking, why are you in that relationship? Why did you do that with your money? Why are you riding an emotional roller coaster? Why did you make that choice, that decision? And our only honest answer would have to be, Lord, I got afraid. I got afraid and I forgot to factor you in. I thought it was just me and Jezebel. And I was scared to death. If we forget God's faithfulness in the past, we will find it impossible to trust him to work in our future. That's why in times of uncertainty, we've got to buckle up and remember. Last week we said we have to buckle up and pray. Now we have to buckle up and remember. When we find ourselves in the midst of uncertainty and instability and the future looks scary to us, we have to look back and remind ourselves of the goodness and faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness in our past shines a light of hope over our future because we know God has been with us. We look forward to the future knowing that he will continue to be with us.
But if we allow anxiety, anxiety about the future, about our nation's future, about our personal future, our family's future, if we allow fear about the future to overwhelm us to the point that we forget what he's done in the past, we will in the present run to places we have no business being. And because God loves us, and because he never gives up on us, he's asking us, what are you doing here? Why are you into that? Why'd you go over there? And the very, the, the, the very best thing we can do is just confess. Lord, I forgot. I thought it was just me versus the world. I forgot to factor you in. I forgot about your goodness and your power and your strength and your love and your grace and your mercy. I forgot to factor all of that into what I'm facing. But I don't want to forget anymore. I want to move forward with the confidence that you're going to walk with me today and tomorrow just like you walked with me yesterday. Bow your heads, please, and close your eyes. You know, we're filming this earlier in the week before you actually hear it. But I know with complete certainty that there's someone here who needed to hear these very words today. Someone here who needed to hear God ask you, what are you doing there? Why did you go there? Did you forget? Did you forget about what I've done for you in the past? Everything I've done. Did you forget about that? Because if you've forgotten that, then you're going to forget to factor me into the future. And your only choice then in facing the future is fear and uncertainty. I want to pray for you. If that's you, if that expresses even a little bit about what's been going on in your life in the last few days, perhaps weeks or months, maybe it's been years, let me pray for you right now and ask God to help you remember. Father God, thank you for your faithfulness in our past. Every one of us here, if we took the time this morning, every one of us here, could give testimony to your faithfulness, your protection, your care, your provision in our past. Father, may we never forget that. May we never set that aside when we're facing an uncertain future. May we never turn from that, Lord, or forget about that when, when we're threatened, when there's a what if out there and we don't know what's going to happen. Father, help us not to forget because when we forget, we run we run to places we shouldn't be. We get into things we shouldn't be into. We go places we have no business being. So, Lord, today, bring your faithfulness and your care and your provision back to our mind and help us to remember all that you've done so that we can see the light of hope that you are shining over our future. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say God bless you.